0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, actually the audio podcast of, and video podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. So uh, Farzana, please uh, introduce yourself.
1: Yes, hello. Hi, my name is Farzana Kapadia. I am an associate professor of epidemiology at the School of Global Public Health at New York University. And I'm also the deputy editor of the American Journal of Public Health.
0: Thank you, Farzana. you're uh, your turn, please.
1: Hi, everyone. My
2: name is Tovele Velda, and I'm a research assistant professor at Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. I'm also affiliated with Mary Amelia Center for Women's Health Equity Research, and my current work involves examining the role of state level factors and policies, including reproductive health policies in contributing to maternal and child health in the United States.
0: Thank you. Thank you, both. So let, let's start with you, uh, Farzana. You've been, uh, you know, handling all the submissions for the journals over the past uh, eight, ten years, at least, about the issue of uh, reproductive rights and abortion and contraception. And so how do you see, uh, what does for you this new law in Texas represent in terms of the evolution of the obstacles that are placed today? in in the United States when women want to seek an abortion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Senate Bill 8 or SB 8 is is just the latest in a long line of policies that have been enacted in Texas, but also in many other states in the South and in the Midwest that have had a really chilling effect on access to abortion care for women living in those states. You know, so we're talking about mandatory counseling, uh, mandatory in-person visits, mandatory ultrasounds, mandatory waiting periods rental consent for minors. And, you know, in Texas, there's been a, a total ban on abortions after 20 weeks of gestation. So the latest law is really quite chilling in its impact because it will virtually eliminate abortion access for women residing in that state who don't have the ability to seek care outside of the state, to, to travel outside of the state, to obtain funding. Um, it's both chilling in that in that respect. And In terms of its constitutionality, you know, those challenges have been made by both the Department of Justice and several different organizations um, within and across Texas and at the national level. But the empowering of private citizens to bring about private lawsuits against not just an abortion care provider, but anyone who assists someone who's seeking abortion care. So we're talking about a counselor who provides advice on where to seek abortion care. Um, a taxi driver who who transports someone to an abortion care facility, um, someone who provides funding, you know, those types of people are being targeted. And it just makes the ability for women who are seeking abortion completely restricted. So it's, it's going to have very, very dangerous impacts in Texas, and it sets a blueprint for other states that have been doing this for the last decade um, across the South and across the Midwest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is very scary. And, and Dovile, you have been comparing uh, the uh, uh, different laws across the, all, the 50 states uh, in terms of access to abortion and, and organize them, you know, according uh, to the number of uh, obstacles that uh, they uh, put, you know, for access. So what, how do you see uh, this new law in Texas compared to what was the situation when you prepared your paper?
2: That's right. So we recently had a study in which we evaluated state abortion restriction climate and we basically used AIDS abortion restrictions or policies uh, and compiled a composite index. And we included, uh, you know, abortions that were mentioned here, such as medically unnecessary ultrasound requirements, mandatory counseling sessions, waiting periods periods between counseling and abortion, gestational age limits, what we have in Texas in this case, insurance coverage, targeted regulations on abortion providers, and so on. So, and, you know, and we evaluate that in terms of how these policies are associated with maternal and infant mortality. But I think I want to move back to what is unique about this this particular ban. We know that approximately 85 to 90 percent of those who seek abortions in Texas are at least six weeks into their pregnancies. So that is effectively banning vast majority of abortions, but I think that the biggest concern is also that unlike other bans in other states that are enforced by state officials, uh, the Texas abortion law enables this system in which private citizens are effectively encouraged to report and sue anyone suspected of break- of breaking this law. so as what well said, you know this includes People, Not only people seeking abortion and medical professionals uh, providing abortions, but also any organization and individuals who help someone seeking abortion after six weeks beyond this cut point. So basically, this ban can be used to target abortion providers, abortion rights activists, patients' family, friends, and even other community members who perhaps unknowingly assist people in seeking abortion care. So I think this is a very dangerous and unprecedented ban that proposes a new approach to restricting access to abortion, which is basically putting private citizens in the way of women exercising their constitutional right to abortion.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this is terrible because apparently uh, it's not sure that uh, the federal Department of Justice can actually uh, sue uh, the state of texas about this law because of the provision that it's uh, not implemented by the state but uh, implemented by private citizens so so but i think that's a that's a legal discussion that uh, maybe we'll have uh, to have in, in another setting what, what i really want to discuss I- here today is uh, what are the implications of uh, block if you know in terms of public health that is the the impact on, on population health, on, on major health indicators of restricting access to abortion. And I think the, that, that's what your work has shown for the U.S. It's well known for the rest of the world. But uh, can you tell us what you found even bef- with the restrictions that were less important than the one in Texas?
2: So to date, there is no evidence, right, that abortion restrictions improve well-being, life, and health outcomes for people seeking abortion. Quite the contrary, what we are seeing is a growing body of scientific evidence that documented the detrimental impact of abortion restrictions on people' health, well-being, economic security, and just their lives overall. So, for instance, women um, who are seeking or who are being denied abortions are more likely to remain in unhealthy relationships, they suffer mental health and physical health consequences, and they live in poverty and have just lower life satisfaction overall. What we know from our research is that restricting abortion based on gestational age, as has been done in Texas, will likely have detrimental effects on women's health and their families and their infants' health.
0: Well, I think you, you, were, you, you were specific in your article in terms of total maternal mortality, et cetera, and, uh, and how it relates to this index that you've created. And I think also we'd like to know what was in this index to give us an idea of the variety of uh, uh, laws that can uh, you know, limit access to abortion.
2: Sure. So we, we basically look at the uh, the composite index, meaning that we wanted to look at the accumulated impact of abortion and what we found based abortion restrictions. And what we po- found is basically that every single additional abortion ban matters. However, when we look apart and look in, evaluate individual policies, we found that restriction against or requirement to have licensed physician to perform abortion services and also uh, ban on Medicaid funding, use on abortion services, those are the ones that specifically were associated with higher or elevated maternal mortality rates in specifically those states that had these restrictions. So when
0: when a doctor doesn't do the abortion, who does it and is it safe?
2: Well, you know, there is an argument and... um, Again, evidence shows that not only this licensed physician can perform abortion care, but also um, nurses and physician assistants, they are fully qualified to provide this care.
0: And and also uh, when you say Medicaid, I mean, the, the idea is that public funds could not cover the cost of abortion. That's that's how those laws works, right?
2: That's correct. So what we found that in those states that that have uh, the Hyde Amendment, which basically prohibits federal funds for abortion care, those states had a higher risk of maternal mortality. However, other states, even when they have these bans, they can allocate their own funds to provide for abortion.
0: Hello, Amanda. Welcome uh, to the the podcast. I mean, uh, these are things that happen, you know, you join us uh, when we started, but that's perfectly fine. Uh, The other participants, you know, Farzana and uh, Daville have introduced themselves because there's an audio component to it. And so please introduce yourself so that people who only uh, hear uh, your voice will recognize who you are.
3: My name is Amanda Stevenson. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. And and so we've been discussing, you know, the the Texas Senate bill and uh, how severe and strict it was compared to other bills. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Amanda, since you have been working already before that bill on uh, the impact of uh, restriction of access to abortion for minors. Can you remind us what was the evolution of this aspect of abortion access and and how do you think this law is going to impact minors in Texas?
3: Well, Texas has had um, restrictions on minors' access to abortion for quite a while. And so we have had in that state the requirement that minors who need abortion care get their parents' permission to access that care. And one of the very earliest restrictions on abortion that the U.S. Supreme Court allowed was this requirement that minors would have to get their parents permission to get abortion. But in allowing that kind of restriction to be implemented, the court also mandated that there be a process by which minors could go and circumvent their parents' ability to veto their abortion, basically. The court basically held that no one had the absolute right to veto anyone else's abortion. And so there had to be a way around the parents' veto. And most states, the overwhelming majority of states, do this by providing what's called a judicial bypass process, where a teenager goes before a judge and asks that judge, usually a man, um, for permission to get the abortion that she needs. And this process has been going on in states for a really long time. But because it's usually a secret process to protect the minors themselves and also to protect the judges from anti-abortion violence and discrimination, because of that secrecy, there hasn't been a lot of scholarship around the impacts of this judicial bypass process. And so there hasn't been much work on the experiences of the minors who have to get these bypasses. So in order to address this absence of evidence because this is a pretty big deal, like teenagers being able to get their abortions can consequ- you know, have consequences for the whole rest of their lives, right? I've been working with an organization in Texas for over a decade that provides legal representation to minors who seek judicial bypass. And in collaboration with that organization, my colleagues and I have been following the experiences of teenagers as they try to get their abortions. And what we've found in Texas is that, as many other researchers have documented, including those here on the panel today, that the impacts of abortion restrictions layer on top of each other. So as new restrictions went into effect in Texas that affected all people who needed abortion, those were experienced by minors, but because minors already had this additional requirement, the impacts of new restrictions on top of that requirement to get parents consent or go through the judicial bypass process was sometimes amplified. In the case of a really early gestational age ban like SB8, we anticipate, and we're hearing on the ground, that this could lead to effective, complete absence of access to abortion for teenagers who can't get their parents' permission. Because a, a couple of years ago, the Texas legislature changed the judicial bypass process to give judges longer to rule on petitions for bypass. And so now judges can take quite a few days before they rule. And that means that now you're past that really early gestational age limit, even if you find out you're pregnant like right after you miss your period.
4: Yeah, of
0: six weeks, etc. Yeah, And so uh, to give us an idea of uh, the magnitude uh, of uh, the problem among uh, minor, what do you think is the proportion uh, of the abortion performed in Texas that uh, are for minor?
3: So, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's it's more than you might expect in states like Texas that have really quite restricted access to contraception. The fraction of abortions that are received by people who are under 18 is higher than in states that have more robust access to contraception. So um, I would I would guess maybe 12 percent, maybe a little less just to guess.
1: I'd just like to add to what Amanda said that, you know, these the uh, judicial bypass mandates are accessible to individuals who can seek the legal care, right? The legal information to know that they can even obtain judicial bypass, and then the amount of time for each judicial bypass is up to five days. So when you're adding, when you're starting at a six-week ban, and you're saying you have up to five days to obtain these judicial bypasses for minors who would know that they can access judicial bypass, is is again just restricting the number of minors who can ever seek abortion care services, and um, will limit it substantially. And that's just between the hearing and the ruling.
3: Yeah. So you have the, usually the minor finds out about the bypass process by going to a clinic. So she usually calls the clinic, has to wait to get called back by someone who's an expert in minors usually. And then that person has to refer her to the organization that provides legal representation to minors. This process, if everything works perfectly, could maybe take one day and then she, that the minor has to you know work through the process of being intake being through the intake process with the legal representation organization and then schedule a hearing which is very
0: non trivial
3: so that 5 days is only part of this process that takes usually over a week when everything works well
0: I think we we should also uh, discuss about who are uh, the women uh, most affected uh, by those restrictions. I mean, we we know that uh, maternal mortality is very high in the U.S., but it it's particularly high among uh, non-Hispanic Black women. So. Uh, who are the women that uh, seek abortion in Texas, or in, do you have an idea, uh, Farzana, uh, how, how, the, how this is distributed in terms of race and ethnicity?
1: I mean, overwhelmingly, women who in, in Texas who seek abortion services are women of color. So we're talking non-Hispanic Black women um, seeking uh, abortion care. And in addition to that, they are living below poverty or living in low-income households. So there are layers of disenfranchisement and marginalization um, that characterize the women who are seeking abortion services in Texas, I would, I would suggest.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a very important component. Delvile, what, what's, what did you find?
2: I couldn't agree more. I think that the most vulnerable, marginalized, and systematically disadvantaged in our society will be those the most impacted. So, you know, people with access to critical means and resources such as money, time, transportation, social capital, those will be able to use these resources and, you know, drive or hop on the plane and fly to another state or country to access abortion care. Meanwhile, those with limited access to resources will be forced to carry unwanted pregnancies with tremendous lifelong consequences. You know, it's all about who has resources to obtain these services. And we know that in the United States, access to resources, be it employment, education, high-quality health care, these are structured along racial and class lines, which means that women of color, and specifically Black women, will be disproportionately affected by this abortion ban.
0: Amanda, what's your experience?
3: Well, so in Texas, uh, almost 40% of abortions are to um, Hispanic women and about a third are to women who are black and about a third or, well, a little bit less than a third are to women who are white. So there's a disproportionate representation of women of color um, in that population of people seeking abortion care. And this is true across the country. So I recently actually calculated the increase in maternal mortality that would occur just because of ending abortion in the United States. And I found that there would be a 21% increase in pregnancy-related deaths in the total population if we ended all induced abortion in the U.S., and a 33% increase among non-Hispanic Black people because of their disproportionately high rates of pregnancy-related mortality and their disproportionately high rates of abortion because of disproportionately high rates of unplanned pregnancy.
0: Now, on a background that is already extremely high, even compared to... uh other countries and uh much less wealthy than, than the united states that, that, that's huge and uh, so uh this uh brings us to uh, another point you know the the said you know if if people have the means they may uh, travel etc and uh, the the person most affected actually may not have them and so the um the new governor of uh, new york local has uh called uh, to Texas women and telling them that uh, if they needed to come to New York, uh, New York would uh, uh, receive them and provide the services they need. So is this uh, offer uh, realistic? What does it tell us about the future of abortion access in the United States?
1: I mean, I I think it's it's an important gesture, certainly, and it's important that that Women in Texas and, and in and several of these other states know that there are other supportive environments and other supportive states for them. But unfortunately, as Davila said, you know the ability to get on a plane, get on a train, get in a car and drive the 1,500, 1,500 um, miles it takes and pay for the gas along the way, pay for the places you'll have to stay, pay for the food that you'll have to consume in order to get to New York in the three or four days that it will take is just not sustainable for women for many of these women who already live at the margins. And so it's important to remember that, yes, gestures matter, but the on-the-ground reality is going to be far different.
0: In your article, you have this map that shows, you know, that the states which with very low restriction to abortion are very few, half a dozen, I think, and they are on the coast and some are in the center. Most of the states have very strict uh, legislation so c- can the the blue states that are open to abortion absorb all the the demand
2: that's that's a good question and i think what will happen is that we will see the the this critical divide in our country in terms of abortion access where the blue states or the coastal states you know on the west and east will be those that are Called protective states, and of course, you know, then traveling to those states will be potential solutions for privileged women who have means and resources. Some blue states will experience a massive influx of patients seeking abortion care. However, I think majority of women will not be able to afford the cost of traveling. You know, I was actually thinking about this question. I think another potential solution is an increase of medication abortion among those in Texas, but. Beyond that, I actually, I, I think the, the, the future for women in Texas looks pretty bleak.
0: Amanda, you, you've you been trained in Texas. Uh, you know the state very well. You've been researching there. So I, I want to give you the last word because we're getting to the end of this. So what do you think? What, what does this Texas law tell us about the future for women in Texas and more generally for access to, to abortion? the United States?
3: Well, I think, you know, New York has been a haven for abortion care before Roe, for example. Um, You can calculate the abortion rates to people in each state that occurred in New York City for the year before Roe went into effect, and you see pretty high population rates of abortion in New York before Roe. So, you know, the gesture is only going to help people with a lot of resources, for sure, but it, you know, history tells us that people are willing to use those resources to access a portion. So I think it's you know, potentially going to be consequential for more advantaged Texas people who are pregnant. But Texas has been very effective at restricting people's access to the means of controlling their fertility. And this has been an effective strategy for Texas um, Republicans to curry favor with their base. So I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. And if you listen to what Texas Republicans say they want to do next, they're coming directly for contraception. So I don't think that there's a very rosy picture on the horizon for people's reproductive autonomy anywhere, really, actually, but especially in Texas.
0: I mean, uh, I'm sorry we have to to finish on this uh, bleak uh, picture of the future, but that's where we are in this country. And... uh, uh, you know, strong reaction uh, must occur in order to uh, change the, the way things are, the direction that uh, things are going to. I, I think, you know, what you showed is that uh, these bans, you know, structurally affect, uh, you know, already women that are already very vulnerable from many, many aspects and uh, mostly women of color and the impact is going to be translated in, in health indicator and one of the most terrible one that we have in this country is the very high uh, mortality rate uh, maternal mortality rate and this uh, according to the evidence uh, will uh, go up if nothing is done so there is an urgency here and thank you very much Farzana Deville and Amanda for having reminding us this and brought your expertise and knowledge on this issue. Thank you very much for being in this podcast.